Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. The commercialization of space, together with seemingly constant launches of clouds of small, capable satellites, well, it's all revolutionized geospatial intelligence. My next guest says the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and the National Reconnaissance Office need to find new ways to innovate. Jack O'Connor is a retired CIA and NGA executive, now with the Krieger School, and he joins me in studio. Mr. O'Connor, good to have you in. Thanks for having me in. So when you say that there's a new need for innovation in space imagery, such Mm -hmm. as processed by the NGA, what do you mean? Well, a lot of work is being done on uh, algorithms that somehow a computer algorithm is going to learn to interpret imagery. And a huge amount of progress has been made with those algorithms. But algorithms are being looked at mostly now for what the analysts do. But the volume of information is such that it has uh, made a different scarcity. Years ago, when uh, space satellites were new, what was scarce was images. But now, it's the attention of the analysts that's scarce. And so, and that's one, because there is so much imagery being there produced. There is a huge volume of imagery. There are, and it's growing uh, exponentially. Just this morning, I learned another 12 satellites are on hold for one day in India. They'll be launched tomorrow. Uh, or when the weather clears up, but they're launching them by the dozen, and actually they have launched them by the hundred. So where there used to be handfuls of satellites, they're now approaching a thousand. And so what do they download? They don't all do pictures. Some of them look at different spectra that may not produce a picture, but produce the ability to visualize something and so on. Uh, Yes, there's multiple kinds of sensors. There's electro-optical, synthetic aperture radar sensors, uh, near infrared, there's multispectral and even hyperspectral. Now the NRO and the NGA make use of this data oh, because yes, they they, yes. their strategy, their stated strategy is they want to simply concentrate on what they can uniquely do in terms of gathering but buy everything else. Sure. So do they understand? I guess they, they must understand what they're buying. Sure. Are you saying they need to do what with it beyond well, just buying of, it? Well, one of the things is they might want to consider how to uh, – measure what they're buying in terms of the way that they formerly did. When digital imagery first came in, a scale was created to help with the concept of interpretability. What would an image allow me to see? Now, there's technical measures for image quality, but you can get a wonderfully high-quality image of a cloud that helps you not at all with answering a question. So the concept of interpretability used to be measured, and then for some reason, about 10 years ago, they stopped measuring it. But there are other units of measure that would help socialize the concepts that NGA and the NRO are trying to do and also help the commercial vendors. And they'd be units of measure for persistence or units of measure for swath width, how much of an area has been taken. There are no common uh, terms or scales that are used for any of these in the community. And the introduction of them would generate, I think, some more innovation in how folks would be able to use these data sets. It would allow for some common language discussion across the communities of the consumers of these uh, questions and data, the creators, the collection managers, and the analysts, and their managers. That idea of interpretability, for example, would say that, well, because of the way this was gathered with this type of lens and this Mm -hmm. type of image capture device, et cetera, Therefore, this white blob, we can zoom in and say, well, that's a car or a truck or a house, mm-hmm. whereas the one done by this methodology, all we know is that it's a white blob. Yes. And 
the uh, scale, even back then in the 70s, could I say at this uh, NEARS rating, we can identify what kind of truck it is, but at this higher NEARS rating, we can identify what specific truck it is, and it's this kind of truck and no other kind, as opposed to a flatbed truck or a box truck. We're speaking with retired intelligence executive Jack O'Connor. He's now a program director at the Krieger School of Johns Hopkins University. And do you feel that the NGA is aware of this issue? They're, they're challenged by it, and they're trying to challenge it as well. Yes, they are aware of the issue, and they have been leading sort of some what I would call tests or experiments in conjunction with the NRO. Both of them are trying to get their hands around the tsunami of visual information. And the, uh, but their work is really at an experimental stage. And part of their struggles are they don't have most of their analysts equipped with a common set of terminology for how to look and evaluate and, and request modifications to this kind of information. And the old near scale was an example of a process that worked. It helped every analyst how to be certified in this. And so there wasn't arguments about whether images were precise enough or not because they had a scale by which to measure. And that would really help them with their challenges with the new commercial vendors. Because the issue is not just scale, but all of this is cost as it's commercial, has to be purchased. And in order to weigh cost, as we do with everything else we buy, you have to think about the value. So some imagery will be technically beautiful, but not much value for intelligence. Others may not be as technically precise, but may be of great value, becomes because it helps with the question of persistent looking or it helps with the question of uh, interpretability or it has enough area so that you can see the whole of something. And is the interoperability among data sets an issue? For that, is, that is a big issue, and I think it will take uh, greater conversations that will have to take place among all the different vendors who are all in business for themselves and among the different countries, all of whom are trying to get their own national imagery capability as well. It's almost like the national airline phenomenon after World War II. Every country wanted to have its own airline, and now 65 countries want to have space imagers. Also a particular challenge for the NGA is we have to, as they see it, use all of this imagery in a way that maintains military dominance. Yes. And now you've got 65 countries that can launch satellites to look at the Earth. Mm -hmm. That becomes more problematic. Yes, because among the things that the other countries can look at are our militaries and our military facilities. So there is both an offensive and a defensive need for uh, a little more clarity and uh, awareness of this phenomenon and its benefits and its potential challenges and risks. I imagine the frequency of a thing being imaged has gone up a lot. I mean, if you had to fly a U-2 with a Hasselblad over some site, well, if you could do that once a month, probably that was about what you could get done. Mm -hmm. Now with all of these satellites, maybe the same thing is seen every 20 minutes. Yes. Well, the famous U-2 uh, process, which ended in the movie Bridge of Spies, The Last Flight, was only 28 penetration flights over four years. Whereas now we have hundreds of satellites a day looking at different parts of the Earth in uh, different uh, resolutions and different interpretabilities. So yes, and that's going to only increase. And so the challenge will be how do we sample out of all of this and how do we figure out what are the collection decisions we need to make to increase our probability of observation. 
and what can we safely ignore? It sounds like a good application for artificial intelligence to sift through reams and reams and reams of data Mm -hmm. of treetops and clouds till you get to the white blob that you care about. Sure. But but the difficulty of that is, uh, I think, best illustrated, uh, we were all familiar with Google Street View. Google decided to try to type the kinds of cars that show up on every street. And with all the money Google had and all their expertise, and they could hire sort of all the car geeks they wanted who were specialty, you know, specialists in Ford Fairlanes or Jaguars, and it still was a much more difficult project than they had envisioned because humans are really great at using their eyes and brains and, and garnering insight and seeing what others don't. And no matter how you train, even the neural network algorithms, they get good but not as good as humans. And NGA wants to focus the humans on the, on the really challenging issues, and they're about that. But they're trying to get the algorithms developed as well. But they, I think collection is an area they should be considering as much as the analysis and should drone footage, would that ever have a role in being added into, say, satellite imagery to Absolutely. create a better picture? Absolutely, it would. And also, uh, the um, three billion terrestrial cameras that we all carry around that are geospatially registered in cell phones. So there are no shortages of images. And a lot of them have great intelligence purpose. And thinking about how do we discuss this in a way that we can figure out how do we sort of make our bets on what we're doing for this. Uh, It's really an exercise in probability, and that's one of the challenges that uh, both the NRO and NGI are wrestling with. And tell us a little bit about the work you did, to the extent you can, (laughs) when you were at NGA and CIA, because those uh, lots of people spend lots of time looking at images in those places. Sure. Well, there's a a limited amount, I can say, uh, but... I spent a lot of time in, uh, I went into um, this profession right before Desert Storm, Desert Shield, and, and worked uh, at the what the immediate questions were back then. And then that was sort of the first look where we could see what uh, the precision that GPS brought. Mm-hmm. Now we all have GPS in our pockets in, in uh, cell phones. But then I also worked through Y2K and then some uh, environmental uh, work and some disaster response and then some military and diplomatic work as well. So lots of folks who are not experts in satellite reconnaissance sort of appreciate the fact that you can have an expert who can translate the technical and the physics and the mathematics into what the political scientists majors need to understand what decisions to make that give them an advantage in how they think or how they plan to act or how they act if they need to act. In some ways, the same problems, the same challenges exist now as did not let alone Desert Storm, but in the Cold War. Uh, Absolutely. We had to see what was Russia building there, or now it's what is North Korea building there. Mm -hmm. And it seems like even though the quality and technology of the imagery has increased exponentially Mm -hmm. over several exponential changes, we still aren't quite able to say, yep, that's a... X, Y, Z. Sure. Well, geospatial intelligence, the two words, I think the geospatial uh, really deals with the precision location and the clarity by which we can get to see things. And intelligence deals with secrets because there are people out there who do not wish for us to see what they are doing and when they are doing it and how they're doing it. And the, the tool, which uh, GPS and GIS and 
brilliant people who are trained to observe, that combination can allow us to discern many secrets. And that's one of the values of all this new commercial information is it may be able to bring something now that we had not had before and that we can get some insight from. But the challenge is going to be how do we sift through and decide what's worth the looking and worth in the fiscal sense, worth in the sense of the other scarcity is analytic attention. If an analyst is paying attention to a certain spot on the earth, it means he's now has more images that he won't be able or she won't be able to look at. So it sounds like there's a human capital element to this new era in imaging. Very, very much so. Um, previous director of NPIC estimated that, I'm sorry, of uh, previous director of uh, NGA, Robert Cardillo, estimated that it would take more than a million analysts to look at what was coming down. And that was a few years ago. So there's even more imagery being created now. And there are not government resources for those kinds of investments in that number. So having the technology identify this is most likely what's uh, worth your time. This most likely will show lots of uh, the difference that matters because the world has huge amounts of things that are different today than yesterday. But one definition of intelligence is the differences that make a difference. And that's what the combination of humans and smart algorithms will arrive at. And if you have algorithms serving people that are doing the higher level brain work, mm -hmm. you also need, I guess, an element of auditability so yes. that you know what the algorithm, well, why did it leave that out? I wish I'd had that type yeah. of a post facto question. Yeah, precisely so. Um, in that one of the things that is useful would be a unit of measure for how much trust an algorithm because algorithms are improving, but it's very hard to do forensics on some kinds of, of the algorithms. So it's, all right, what this algorithm is good, but how good is it and how do we measure that? Well, I think that would be another social unit of measure that would be really helpful in geospatial intelligence. We're speaking with retired intelligence executive Jack O'Connor. He's now a program director at the Krieger School of Johns Hopkins University. And this is a computing problem more than an imaging problem, I guess, but we have been presupposing that image capture satellites and drones and so on are always just sending back whatever they gather. Could there be onboard AI such that only what's downloaded is what we really care about? Sure. And, um, and the uh, you can think of it in terms of a longstanding uh, challenge in the profession, and this goes back to World War One, which is clouds. Images of clouds are not particularly helpful for most purposes. So having uh, something that would discern um, We've been in clouds for a while. We should just stop until we get out of the clouds. And humans are wonderful at that, and the algorithms are getting better at that. Right, sure. Yeah. And I guess, too, the algorithm, or the, uh, the imaging devices now can see beneath the surface of the Earth to some degree, can't they? Yeah, Relative to film, which can only see reflected light. Yes. Well, some of the sensors, uh, it's not so, I'm not sure I would use the word see, but they can be processed to, to notice the differences in data that say, oh, this is slightly different from the last image that we took of this area, and we're either uh, seeing subsidence changes in the surface, or we're seeing some reflective difference in uh, the spectral bands. And that is very important for things like um, detecting leaks 
uh, detecting uh, or buried plutonium or, or uh, well, I'm not sure how I, I can't speak to the issue of plutonium, but uh, very much the issue of, um, for instance, in the Arctic, where now where areas that previously were ice covered, we're seeing terrain we've never seen before. And what's the nature of that terrain? And um, the geologists can use spectral information to say quite a bit about what's what we're observing for the first time. And getting back to the human question, a modern image analyst, say, that might work at one of the intelligence agencies or military agencies or, mm-hmm. for that matter, civilian agencies civilian. just doing regular work that's not secret, what does that take? Well, um, in, in the graduate program we've put together, it really takes uh, – Uh, and I think of this as sort of the DNA model, you're going to need math and science, but you're also going to need some sense of the history and the art. And they combine, kind of like the double helix, and we're not exactly sure what will be demanded in the future, but we are pretty sure that it will be those four elements will be the basis of it. So the uh, students generally like half of the curriculum, depending on their previous ec, and they struggle with the other half because uh, it, it demands of the political scientists, they may have to learn some Python coding to be able to manipulate scripts to use algorithms or data to their advantage. And for the folks who are very comfortable with the math and science, they have to learn to communicate to get inside somebody's attention space, which is very small these days. And they have to learn to tell stories visually, vocally, and verbally. And those are not as easily acquired skills as some might think. Well, Michelangelo had to learn to use a chisel and a hammer. Sure. And the uh, and it was Leonardo who drew the first perspective bird's eye view map. So it was an artist who actually went into cartography at the very beginning to, to recognize, from, and it was done for military purposes. Here's where you need to defend this small town in Italy. Yeah, so uh, what comes next, do you think, for agencies like NGA and NRO and... I think, they're, I think they're going to have to collaborate, and which is why I think sort of having common units of scale will, will very much help. Because as you pointed out, there are plenty of independent geospatial communities now. There are environmental communities. There are uh, political activist communities in Sudan and North Korea, for instance. Um, there are also energy communities and folks looking at energy trade, uh, particularly petroleum, doing really fine work with a synthetic aperture radar. So there are lots of communities where there used to be one and understanding where the government can lead would be something. And one of the things that the government can do better than uh, private sector, I think, is create the units of measure and then let the private sector respond. And that will spark some creativity in the private sector and in the government applications as well. Sounds like something almost the uh, Commerce Department through NIST could get involved with. Well, Commerce is actually the focal point between small satellite business and the U.S. government. So this is an area that I'm sure they're interested in, and I suspect. Uh, but but the old measure was done by the users of the product, the folks who had to get an answer out of the image. And I think that won't change because there are still folks, as you pointed out, trying to figure out what was different in North Korea today that really matters that the U.S. government needs to know about? Or what is important about um, what's changing in a particular piece of real estate? Is, if the, is there evidence of seawater rise? Is there evidence of uh, desertification? 
Lots of things are important but happen slowly. Some are important that happen quickly. And folks who can use the new technology and the algorithms along with their training and their ability to drive insight are going to be always in demand. We're speaking with retired intelligence executive Jack O'Connor. He's now a program director at the Krieger School of Johns Hopkins University. Sounds like an exciting field, actually. Oh, it, it is very exciting. Um, there were uh, times when I thought I had the coolest job in the United States government. So, and there, those are now there are folks outside of government who sort of see, oh, I can, I'm discovering something that maybe no one's ever seen. And they can use these technologies to um, sharpen it and communicate it to the world. And just a crazy detail question. A monitor that you look at images on is mm -hmm. made up of this, you know, 3,440 pixels, this wide sure. and 1,440 that way. Does the technology for display also need to maybe advance in order that it doesn't put a limiting factor on the resolution of what it is that was gathered in the sure. first place? Well, I think that the the driver that is uh, in between the, the satellite and the monitor is what kinds of processing can happen and what kinds of processing software. So now there are commercially available uh, software packages that do allow you to measure on the image. They allow you to manipulate the image and increase and uh, uh, change the values of light and, and density so that you can essentially make signal noise adjustments live on the monitor to get the optimum kinds of, uh, of uh, viewing. Now, that said, higher-resolution monitors are better than lower-resolution monitors. <laughs> sure, and I guess Kodachrome was the best of all, but they don't make that anymore. No, no Kodachrome, well, Kodachrome was a, a film backing, uh, and, and Kodak is out of business. Um, right. And that's, uh, but the, the attention and sort of the incremental improvements have been happening since 1960 in satellite imagery. And they seem to be happening globally at a greater scale and faster now. And it's one of the challenges is how do we incorporate all of that into the profession in a fiscally meaningful way if you're in the government and in a way that allows you to have intelligence advantage. Now, the Air Force and other agencies still build billion, multi-billion dollar satellites. There was one lost in a satellite mishap about a year and a half ago and nobody knew exactly what it was. It was top-secret satellite, and the story went strangely dark in a hurry. <laughs> and we never, and it's at the, presumably at the bottom of the ocean. Nobody knows. <laughs> I'm in the group that doesn't know. Yeah. Well, I wasn't going to ask about that in particular. <laughs> but do you see the day, given what is happening in commercial technology, that there will be no need to build these multi-billion-dollar launch them ten years from now, one shot or you're dead? types of, uh, of uh, equipment? I, th I believe they're going to be needed for at least the next decade. And, and the rationale is, has to do with the laws of physics for light, which is the mirror size really helps sure. the amount of light you can get into your sensors. And to have uh, a, a mirror that large means you have to put that much mass up in space, which takes a large satellite and a large rocket. Now, there are some interesting experiments um, that are in the laboratory now with using small satellites with smaller mirrors and flying them in formation to create the effect of a large virtual a, mirror. A virtual mirror, but they are in the, only in the experimental stage. And so I believe that the 
the NRO is going to be in business for quite some time. Retired intelligence executive Jack O'Connor is program director at the Krieger School of Johns Hopkins University. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.